Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Good morning. Well, you guys have arrived on a very unique Sunday. Uh, we don't, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to Oak Hill. We are really glad to have you here. We don't always have tables up, and we never have chili lined up in the back. That is uh, an unusual thing. But today is our fall elder panel. What that means is all of our elders are going to be teaching this morning. And we, yes, we're having a chili cook-off, and we're going to eat lunch together afterwards. Everybody's invited. So we hope that you'll stick around and uh, taste some of our chilies. This is always one of my favorite Sundays of the year. This is a time where I get to share this pulpit with my fellow elders and to have a chance myself to sit and to learn from their teaching. These are guys who continue to demonstrate to me and to all of you week after week an incredible love for God's word and for the local church. Uh, As you may know, after many, many years of serving on our elder team, Ross Anderson is on a sabbatical. So we've given him a break this Sunday. He's in the back somewhere. He gets a break. The rest of the elders, all seven of them, are up here uh, in front today, and we're excited to dive right in. The topic of our elder panel this year is one of the most important and practical uh, things that any Christian, any Christian can and should strive to understand and to put into action in his or her life in the local church. Today, we want to flesh out the meaning of the one another's that are dotted all over the pages of Scripture. Depending upon whose list you trust, there are somewhere around 60 of these commands, these one another commands in the New Testament. Think about that, 60. That is a serious amount of a divine calling in the life of every single person in this room. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say, uh, Jeff, I love Oak Hill, but I'm really struggling to find ways to get involved in body life here. And while I could run down the list of all of our ministries and talk about all of our service opportunities, and there are many, really the best place to start is with what we're talking about this morning. So hear this. The Bible gives you around 60 ways that you can immediately get involved in body life. Today, this week, that's a lot. And so I hope you'll be encouraged and challenged this morning as each of the elders comes up to teach on a particular one another. And as they do, here's my prayer that you would ask the Holy Spirit to show you ways that you can grow in your commitment to one another in this building this morning. Amen? Are we awake? All right. Pinch yourself if you're not. I know the the chili might just put you into a daze, the smell of it all, but we need to focus this morning. I'm going to invite up somebody you've already heard from this morning leading worship, Grant Fonda. Hey, fam. Well, Jeff told me that because I'm going first, I get 15 minutes. No. No, that's not true. No. But I, I'm speaking first about how God's word tells us to love one another. And the reason that we're talking about this first is because everything that we're going to learn about love informs all of the other one another's that we talked about this morning. That all of those things have to be born out of love. And we'll see why. So turn with me or flip with me to 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us so that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There is so much that we could say about this passage. There are so many different applications But I'm going to draw three for us this morning. But before we draw those applications, it's important for us to get a quick bird's eye view to understand what's going on because love is said a lot. John's language is candid and it's earnest with us. He's pleading with us to understand the very nature of not love, but of God himself. Verse 7 in the ESV says that love is from God or quite literally love is of God. His very essence is the definition and should be our definition of love. Because of this we then see the imperative, let us love one another. This is a command that's given to those who are children of God. 
So because God is love, everyone who is born of God must be loving. It's a good flow of logic. So we could pray and go home right there. That's easy. It's an easy application. But John's telling us that this is not a one-time event that we enact towards strangers, but even more so, love is used here as an ongoing family event. We think about love in the context of family, and it's easy for us. So put yourself in that mindset. Because we are born of God, we are children of God, we should love one another. This is a perpetual state of the will that we see in verse 8 and also in 1 John chapter 3. So wrap that all up. We are commanded to love those who God has called his own. It's, it's a command. The second point of our church covenant reads, we will walk together in brotherly love, and it goes on from there. But it's this love that we see in our covenant that's being described here in 1 John chapter 4. Family love is a people who are being born of God. If you skip to the end, we're going to come back to the middle here in a second, but verse 12 says that no one has seen God, but if we love one another as Christ has loved us, we see God's love perfected in us, and that is it meets its appointed goal. Friends, when we unpack this love and its application, we actually see God's original intent for love mirrored. This doesn't mean that we're going to do this perfectly. That's not what perfect means here, but it means that it is fully realized that God's design in sending Christ is exhibited towards one another. So what do we do with this? Verse 10 tells us to love one another actively. God's love was demonstrated towards us in not a passive manner, but an active demonstration of his will. He acted when we didn't make any move towards him, and he didn't sit around and wait us wait for us to show signs that he would receive love in return. He made the first move. In verses 10 and 11, we see that God sacrificially sent his son as our substitute. God saw a need, and he intervened. This isn't an introverted kind of love that we practice a lot of times as Americans, but it's expressive, it's demonstrative. It's not condescending. It doesn't think of itself righteously. It doesn't think of all the reasons that someone in the family doesn't deserve our love, but it instead says, I will love you in spite of. It doesn't wait for someone to show you care or concern before you jump in and show them care and concern. This kind of a love, as we see God's demonstrate, jumps into our mess without thinking of whether or not that person might do the same and in turn say, let me help you. So we should also love one another graciously. God demonstrated his love to us at our weakest point when we were undesirable. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. This is unmerited favor. It didn't expect anything in return or give us love because of what we had seen. And so if God has demonstrated for us to give us the greatest gift at our weakest point, we are called to imitate this in one another's weakness. You will never be ready to show love to another sinner because you are a sinner. But we are called to show compassion and mercy towards one another when someone sins against you because God did. Be quick to overlook an offense. Lavish a brother or sister with kindness. Don't just sprinkle it on and hope that they see it. Pour it out as God did when they don't initiate it towards you. Lastly, love one another humbly. Verse 11 says that if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this comes right on the heels in verse 10 of John speaking about the incarnation. Royalty robed in humanity. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. God stepped down through time and space to do something unimaginable and inconvenient, humbling himself to death. And so if that's our standard, anything else doesn't match up. Spurgeon describes this verse as seeing the love of God springing freely from his heart. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't presume that he's going to receive anything in return. And he doesn't presume that someone will force him to love accordingly. So husbands, wives, serve one another. Members, serve one another. Children, serve your parents humbly. Don't expect that someone would ask for advice in return for you showing them love. Don't think that you should be able to have someone power through a challenging circumstance or think that you're too busy to run an errand or take them a meal, but think of the way that Christ inconveniently set aside his power to die as a common criminal on the cross for you. So, love is actually really immensely simple, right? When we boil it down, imitate the love that God has shown to us. And so as we walk through the rest of these one another's this morning, we'll get to see more of God's heart for how this unpacks in a really practical context for us.
All right, fellowship with one another. God's word says that we are to fellowship with one another. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, which you were just in 1 John chapter 4, so hopefully it's not too far. Uh, fellowship with one another is a little unique to the one another's as you will not find it in the typical list of the one another's. Uh, while the typical one another's are commands, love one another, uh, encourage one another, admonish one another, fellowship with one another is more of something that we have than something that we are to do. And yet it forms the essence of all the other one another's because fellowship provides the context for us to carry out the one another's. Hear that again, fellowship provides the context for us to carry out the one another's. Uh, we're gonna be looking at verses three and verses seven in First John one. Uh, <clears throat> but let's start from verse one just to gain some context. First John one, chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse three, listen to this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. In John's letter, he's writing uh, to share Jesus with us whom he has seen, whom he has heard, who he now proclaims this Jesus to us so that we may know him. And the result of our knowing Jesus is that we would have fellowship with one another and we would, have, we would be united then with one another. We would not only be united with one another, but we would also be united together with the Father and the Son. <clears throat> when we are saved, we enter into fellowship with one another. We are united with Christ, and we are united with all believers. But there's more to fellowship than, uh, <clears throat> than just being saved and being made part of a community. At the beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we find that the, the, the first church uh, was described as being devo devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So we have a greater meaning of fellowship here as the first believers devoted themselves to two things in the church, two aspects of church life, to the teaching of the word of God and to the fellowship. And there's that clarifying statement added there stating that fellowship involves such things as coming together to eat together, to celebrate communion together, to pray together, to carry out spiritual life with one another. So fellowship is more than being united with believers, but coming together to practically live out the Christian life with one another. As the body of Christ, it is essential for believers to come together, to be connected with one another, because without one another, we are lacking. We have been given gifts by the Spirit to use for the building up of the church, the body of Christ. It is through fellowship with one another where those gifts are to be used for the benefit of all. <clears throat> Therefore, it is essential for us to regularly unite together with other believers so that we can use our gifts to love and serve one another as well as being loved and served by others. The body is only whole when all its members are functioning together. Fellowship, uniting with other believers is essential to the Christian life and our spiritual wellness because fellowship provides the context to carry out the one another's. Most of our church covenant is a summary of the one another's and yet we cannot carry out any of them if we are not actively participating with one another. So how do we fellowship at Oak Hill? Well, we need to spend time with one another. <clears throat> we need to be committed to one another. We need to be committed to being together on Sunday mornings. It means we're connected with others during the week. It means that we're part of a community group where we can be, um, come together with one another. It means that ultimately that we know one another. We have to know one another because if we do not know one another, then we cannot carry out what we have been commanded to with the one another's. 
Listen to the words uh, from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the day more as you see the day drawing near. We can only stir up one another to love and good deeds. We can only encourage one another if we are together in fellowship with one another. Fellowship provides the context for us to carry out the one another's. Well, good morning. I'll be talking about what it means to build up one another. And that's an interesting word in the Greek. The root meaning of that word is to build a house. And later was applied to building any building. And Paul and the other New Testament writers often describe the church as God's household or God's temple or God's building. So when Paul speaks of building up one another or edifying one another, he's speaking about how we are to build God's house in a way that makes it strong and able to stand up to the wear and tear of life. And if we take the analogy Paul uses at face value, the picture is pretty clear. We together are God's house, and our actions every day are either strengthening that house or they're tearing that house down. Think about that. Imagine living in a house where some of the occupants are more focused on tearing, down, tearing it down than strengthening it and building it up. Yet that is often the way that some Christians act at church, as if their actions that tear other believers down have no consequences for themselves. The only way this house, this church, stays strong is when we all work together to build up one another and to make sure that we are seeking the good of others and not just ourselves. And because we've been in Romans for a while, I wanted to focus on what Paul states in Romans 15 about building up one another and edifying one another. And we'll talk about three ways that we can do that. So turn to Romans 15, verses 1 to 3, and we'll see what Paul states about building up one another. Romans 15, verses 1 to 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is wrapping up here his discussion about how the weak and the strong should view each other and have grace for each other. And the strong aren't to look down on the weak, and the weak are not to judge and condemn the strong. But Paul has some pointed exhortations as he wraps this up. The strong are to bear with the weak. That's part of building them up. And that word for to bear with literally has the idea of carry. And it's used of Jesus carrying his cross. None of us are to simply please ourselves. We're to help carry one another when the need arises. All of us, weak or strong, are to please his neighbor for his good. It requires all of us seeking the good of one another when we come together to build all of us up. And we are to seek for edification to the building up of one another. To put this in simple language, it means each of us enter this place. We are to come with our eyes open for the needs of others and to constantly be on the lookout for opportunities to build up and strengthen one another. And if you're wondering how you do that, one way is to look at what Paul tells us not to do in chapter 14. We're not to cause a brother to stumble. We aren't to tear others down, and we're not to damage them with the choices we make. Instead, we're to be focused on ways to build up, to strengthen and encourage one another. In the American church, so much of what happens is that people come looking for what they can get rather than what they can give. We must have a constant focus on other people, and when we see an opportunity to build them up in any way, we grab it. And I hope you'll notice that the reason we do this in verse 3 is because that is how Jesus lived, and we are called to be like him. He didn't go to the cross to please himself. He did it for our good, and he bore all our reproaches that went with that. He did it to build us up. And I would encourage all of us to think about how we can build each other up and how we can strengthen them in their walk with the Lord. What, we can do that in three concrete ways. First, with our actions. 
Every time we choose to lay down our own will and serve someone else, even when it's inconvenient, we are choosing to build up others. Our actions put edification in concrete terms. Second, with our gifts. At the core of everything Paul tells us about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is one main focus, that each of us use our spiritual gifts to edify, to build up the faith of others. My gifts aren't for me, they're for you. Your gifts aren't for you, they're for me. All of us are gifted for the good of the other members of the body. And when we use our gifts as God intends us to use them, we are going to build up other people. And finally, with our words. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul exhorts us that we are to use our words wisely and well, to build up others and to edify them. We aren't to let crude and unwholesome words come out of our mouths. Instead, we're to use our words to bring grace to those who hear us so that we can help them in that moment and strengthen their faith. Our words are one of the most powerful ways that we can build one another up. And if this church is indeed our home, then all of us have a responsibility to make sure that we use our actions and we use our gifts and we use our words to build it well so that it can be a home that stands the storms of life and is a haven for everyone who enters here. So don't come looking for what you can get on Sundays or in C group. Come looking for what you can give. Come and be like Jesus and please others and not yourselves. And seek ways to build them up by using the other one and others, encouraging, teaching, comforting, exhorting, so they can stand firm in the Lord. Do that. Church won't be boring. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so the next one another is to bear with one another. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, so what does that mean? What does it mean to bear with one another? I might say to you, bear with me for a minute uh, while I do thus and so. And what I'm asking you to do is to be patient with me. So in Ephesians chapter 4, let's start in verse 1 and read it in context. Uh, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a matter manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, in addition to patience, bearing also means to be forgiven, forgiving, to be merciful. It's kind and it's accommodating. And we do it with, with love. Verse 2 says, bearing with one another in love. Here, it's agape love, meaning we do it unconditionally, no matter how much people in the church or at home rub us the wrong way. It's not a feeling, it's love. It's something that we do. It's active. We put it into action. The NASB translates verse 2 like this, showing tolerance for one another in love. So we're to show tolerance for each other in our fellowship. Paul here is not saying that we should tolerate sin or false teaching. We have limits for those things. But tolerance in this context means that we are to be kind and very long on forgiveness in areas that are clearly not sin. So what are some of the situations uh, where we should show tolerance? So in a church like Oak Hill, the size of Oak Hill, we have a lot of different personalities, a lot of different people and their different idiosyncrasies. Some people at Oak Hill have strong personalities and others are more reserved. Some of us are outgoing and others are shy. Some are analytical and others fly by the seat of their pants. And some people are creative and others like me are not. <laughs> and when we put all of these different personalities together, there are al almost always differences when, we when it comes to how we go about conducting ministry or the affairs of the church as we all work in ministry together. But we're all to show tolerance in these situations as we minister together. And it's not just putting up with somebody uh, or grinning and burying it, uh, but it's actively uh, showing love and pursuing fellowship with everyone in the church. We're also calling it called to tolerate or bear with others when their opinions about gray areas in the Bible differ from ours. Remember, we talked about disputable matters uh, when we studied Romans chapter 14 a couple of months ago. Uh, it's okay to have de healthy debates about those items, but, but it's not okay to argue about those 
uh, things, and, and particularly silly things to the point where they might cause a dissension or, or, um, or division within the body. We need to be careful not to allow those things to cause division. There might be different styles of music and worship. People express themselves in worship in different ways. We need to show tolerance in that area. There may be people who struggle emotionally, and there may be people with different levels of spiritual maturity, and, we need to, uh, and we're also expected to show tolerance uh, in those areas and at home with our spouses and our children. We're expected to bear with them as they mature, knowing that we're all sinners and Christ is doing his work of sanctification in us too. And there might be somebody, some people in the church who just rub you the wrong way. Maybe you just don't like them. Or maybe you think that they don't like you. And so sometimes we might be inclined to kind of withdraw from a relationship with that person. We might be inclined to think, well, uh, I'll just avoid that person. I'll, I'll focus on the 99% of the other people in the, in, at, at Oak Hill. Uh, but that would be the wrong approach. Because when we say that we're, we're not going to have fellowship with a person that maybe rubs us the wrong way or maybe we think that they don't like us or we don't like them, then what we're really saying is we're breaking fellowship with them. And that's causing division in the church. And that's not the right approach. The overarching goal of all of this is unity. We strive for unity and peace within the body. So look at verses 2 and 3 again. It says in verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we start out with humility, and humility promotes gentleness. And humility combined with gentleness produces patience. And when we combine humility and gentleness and patience, it results in bearing with one another in love. Um, and that all produces uh, unity within the body. As we bear with each other, as we're patient with each other, as we show humility with each other, that promotes unity. And that's the first covenant in our church covenant is, is, uh, has to do with unity. Covenant number one, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit within the body, always practicing forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation, and rejecting harmful gossip. Remember that Christ prayed for unity in the garden just before he was crucified. Unity and peace don't come without effort. We need to desire it deeply. We need to sacrifice for it. We need to work at it. And as we are patient with each other, kind and gentle and forgiving, we will have the unity that Christ desires for us. Thank you. Adam? Thank you, Dave. All right, Jeff No, are you taking, taking notes here? Are you listening? God's word says, speak truth to one another. Turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4. Now, if you guys don't know why that's funny, it's because we were all given very specific instructions for what we needed to say, and my previous few brothers have used their uniqueness to speak. What we were told to say specifically, God's word says. So there you go. You happy? Okay, just wanted to make sure we're good there. Now, as you know, everyone, uh, all the elders who were up here would have much rather been preaching for 30, 40, or longer if you're Eric. Um, <clears throat> but we were only given five minutes, so we'll see if we can, we can all stay here. Now, I imagine many of you in Ephesians chapter 4 are familiar with verse 15. Take a look there. Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, there's a contrastive statement in verse 14 that uh, Paul makes to the church at Ephesus. Really, it's God himself speaking to the church at Ephesus. But before we go over the contrastive statement and why verse 15 is so important in terms of speaking the truth in love, just a couple of observations here. Over many years in ministry, I have often received the question, what does it look like to speak truth in love? What does that look like? Now, it may even be probable that, that you've asked that question or that you've prayed to the Lord or personally sought the scriptures to find an answer. I know I have on more than one occasion. I've often found that Christians, regardless of their theological background, have great confidence, sometimes an overconfidence, in obeying this command in scripture. Sometimes that confidence may lie in their ability to speak the truth or what they deem as truth, but actually as preferences and opinions then they struggle greatly when it comes to speaking lovingly. Or Christians may think they're incredibly loving when they speak to others, avoiding offending others and being sure to not take any firm stances in scripture that may be difficult for other people. 
unfortunately, in doing that, they lack substantive truth to actually be of any help to other people. So before we consider how to pursue this faithfulness and this one another, let's consider the warning in verse 14. Take a look at your text here. You see a great caution that I'm going to explain very briefly. There's a devastating result and a reality of not speaking the truth in love. As verse 14 states, it would induce our remaining as children regarding our practical and spiritual maturity. It would limit our ability to be wise if we do not speak the truth in love, and it would open the door for us to be influenced by improper and unbiblical thoughts about God and about man. Ultimately, it would make us susceptible to be led astray by human lies, which only serve to benefit the perpetuators of lies. That is a sad and discouraging reality. May it never be in the normal lives of believers at Oak Hill that we would neglect to speak the truth in love and incur such a disastrous reality. So what does it look like? What does it look like to speak the truth in love? Now, you're in your Bible here, Ephesians 4. You're looking at verse 15. Why don't you go ahead and jump down a few verses? Jump down beginning in verse 22. See, in God's wisdom, we don't have to reach very far. We can let Scripture interpret Scripture to apply this one. By His grace, we are instructed very practically and very specifically how we are to pursue faithfulness in speaking the truth in love. It's a three-part process. You ready? And it underscores a major principle in speaking the truth. Part 1, verse 22. Put off your old self. Don't live in sinful patterns of behavior. Put an end to worshiping creation and self over the creator. Cease any attitude or behavior which does not honor Christ or exemplify the gospel. That is part one. Put off your old self. Next verse. Verse 23. Renew your mind. Invigorate your life and your thinking by drinking deeply of the well of truth from God's word. Dwell upon God's character, his promises, his declarations. Meditate upon Christ's goodness, his sacrifice, and his power to redeem and renew. As often as possible, think deeply upon the implications of truth from God's word. And do not expect a list of rules for your life, but rather seek to renew your mind with scripture. That you would know how to live a life worthy of the gospel calling in Christ Jesus. In part 3, verse 24 Put on the new self. Apply faithful living from a renewed mind. Make choices informed by truth from God's word. Seek to live righteously and to show God to others. And if you're striving to be faithful in these three things, to put off your old self, verse 23, to renew your mind, or sorry, verse 22, to renew your mind in verse 23 and to put on the new self in verse 24, you will likely be pursuing what Paul underscores as a prerequisite for speaking the truth in love addressed in verse 25. Put away falsehood. Put away lying. And let each one of you, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. In putting away lying, we're battling against the warnings of verse 14, and we're pursuing speaking the truth to one another and to our neighbors. In this way, we're striving to be imitators of God because God does not lie. He never lies. He only ever tells the truth. And since he also carries the characteristic of being perfectly loving, as it's been already explained this morning, we can also say that God's word always tells us the truth in love. So my encouragement to everyone regarding this one another is to pursue truth from God's word for your own mind renewal and then to share God's word with others. If you do this, you will be pursuing much of the membership covenant that we have here at Oak Hill. Here's a few that will be impacted by speaking the truth in love. Working and praying for unity, walking together in brotherly love, praying for one another, delighting in others' joys, bearing in one another's sorrows, discipling others, and living carefully in the world. All of these are founded upon a renewed mind which promotes truth from God's word with yourself and with others. Eric. brother. Good morning. All right, you guys are still awake. All right. All right, God's word says to forgive one another. 
I don't need to instruct you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4 because you're there already. <laughs> so this is just a blessing on this topic of forgiving one another. Um, just like the other one another's, I think they're also interrelated. Um, it was such a blessing to be able to study this um, these last couple of days. But let me give you more context. Both Dave and Adam gave some context, but let me give you a little bit more as we look at how Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is, it's basically a doctrine of the church. And we know that Paul wrote the first three chapters in the belief of the believer, what they should believe, the doctrine side. And on chapter four is the behavior. And so this is where we're at. That's why it's so practical to see at least the three of the one another's were coming right out of chapter four here. And so... Um, as we look at it, Paul's charge to the Ephesians was for them to be zealous in maintaining unity and holiness. I want you to remember that. For them to diligently maintain unity and holiness. Ephesus was a multicultural, a multi-ethnic, ethnic, and a religiously diverse uh, region. Different people of all walks, different religions, different cultural backgrounds. And so here, Paul is encouraging them to maintain unity within. Now get this. It's a Christian, Gentile, Jew church. Imagine the tension already with just different cultural backgrounds. Different belief systems, at least in terms of how they are looking at um, who God was. And so the point here is to live life on life together and continually work hard to preserve the unity. Preserve unity, and when you're doing that, you're also maturing in holiness. Right? This is the church. This is the desire of Paul. But the question is how? How is the church supposed to maintain that? And one, again, Dave went over unity and then Adam actually going from uh, verse 16 all the way to uh, verse 25 is in holiness, right? Put off ungodliness, renew your mind, and then replace it with righteousness. Holiness. And so we, here we are. Now we come to the final verse of this section. I would say it's Paul's final thought in terms of this unit of thought of unity and holiness. And it reads this. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And here it is. The explanation to the believers is, one, it was commanded to them. It was commanded because it's in an imperative stating, hey, you are to be this. You were once unrighteous, and now you are holy. You had bad habits, and now you should have good habits of holiness. And so he's commanding them to be what? Giving them character descriptions. It says to be kind and compassionate. Notice how your conduct should be within the church to maintain unity and holiness. And who is the object of your kindness and compassion? It says one another, the church. And so... Paul is instructing the church. He's actually commanding them to be kind and compassionate. But further, he's saying, be forgiving. What is this being supposed to be? It's forgiving. And what does it mean to forgive here? Right? And it transitions from forgiving each other to the comparison. You are to forgive just as or if you want to rephrase that, in the degree that God has forgiven you. How should I forgive my fellow believer? Paul is instructing how God has forgiven man, his elect, his chosen, his people. And here the word means pardon. If anything else, it actually means to give favor freely, un unreservedly, completely. But the point I want to make here is furthering that definition of this pardon, it is to resolve not to remember an offense. 
right? When there's forgiveness that has to be had, what usually happens? There was probably a conflict. There was probably a sin involved. And so here, not just to pardon or to give favor, but it is to resolve not to remember an offense. And so where does this principle or concept come from? And so I'm going to give you two verses. I'll just read it for you, but write it down if you have notes. Is where is this, this, this concept comes? It comes from the Old Testament. First in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. And it reads, I, the Lord, even I, I am the one who wipes, away, wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The next verse is Jeremiah 31, 34. And the Lord says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We have an awesome God. Amen? He has forgiven the sins of his people. He has forgiven your sins if you're a professing Christian here. He does not remember your sins. And the interesting about this, this, this statement is to say is forgiving is not remembering. It's an active action. You're choosing not to remember versus forgetting. What is forgetting? For me, that's mindless. That's like my wife telling me something, and I'm just like, oh, I just, I forgot. But to not remember is an active action, and that is what God has done for us in Christ. He has forgiven us in that sense. And it's such a beautiful picture of that. And so in this context of the church in Ephesus being instructed to forgive continually when there's an offense or a sin, it's all in the context of conflict resolution, right? Is to confront sin, to confess sin, repentance, forgiveness, and then reconciliation and restoration for what? The unity of the church, as we heard from Dave. Because our minds have been renewed, we have been changed through the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, amongst the people of God. So what does this look like? What does this not remembering look like practically for us today? Well, number one, it looks like to not bring up offense in myself. If somebody offended me and I choose to forgive them, I am not to bring it up. I'm not to dwell on it. That's the first practical way to, to not remember. Number two is not to bring the offense against the person who offended you. You had reconciled. You have forgiven. But you are not to bring it up and hold it against that person again. And then three is not to bring up the offense with others. Not to say like, hey, so-and-so and I, we had a dispute, we had a conflict. And even though you had reconciled it and forgiven, and yet you turn to other people and say, hey, this guy is like this. That is not remembering. Not, that is not an active way of not remembering. So this is the reason why Paul is instructing the church in Ephesus to forgive. You have been renewed in your mind. We are seeking to dil diligently maintain unity in the church. So look at our verse one more time. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I pray that your calling as a believer just does not stay there, but that your calling moves into your conduct on how you minister to one another in this church. Praise God for his forgiveness, but yet manifest that forgiveness amongst one another. Amen, brothers. Thank you. Great stuff uh, this morning. I get uh, the pleasure of, of wrapping up with one last topic. Uh, the Bible says that we're to pray for one another. And uh, guess what book we're going to be in? Yeah, Ephesians. Uh, flip over a couple, page or two to Ephesians chapter 6. To be honest with you guys, we, we, we planned out the topics, but not the passages. It just came out this way. Maybe we should have done a survey in Ephesians. 
I don't know. <laughs> Ephesians 6, we're going to look at a verse that's probably familiar to you. Ephesians 6 is, of course, where we find Paul's teaching on the armor of God. And what I'm going to do is just quickly summarize this section, and then I want to focus your attention on one verse in particular. It's verse 18. So the first thing we see here in verses 10 to 13 of Ephesians 6 is where Paul gives us an explanation of the spiritual battle that we're in as believers. Each and every day, folks, there are spiritual forces that are scheming against you. That's what Paul says. And if we have any hope of resisting these forces and standing firm in the battle, then he says, we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? Well, Paul goes on to explain that we're to put on this thing he calls the full armor of God. And so in the next section, verses 14 to 17, he describes for us what that full armor is. He's giving us, this is the equipment that's been made available to you in the battle. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which he identifies for us as the Word of God. So you got to catch the, the imagery that Paul is drawing for us here. We're all geared up now, right? We're warriors for Christ in the gospel. We've got all this gear on. It's a, it's a pretty awesome picture, right? But the question is now what? We've got the gear on, now what? You'd be pretty foolish to put all that stuff on and then just stand there. True? That's where verse 18 comes into play. Now that we have the gear on, here's what we do with it. Here's how we fight. Verse 18 from the CSB. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. As an aside, let me just say this, and I'll be blunt with this. Some of you are getting knocked around in the spiritual battle of your life because you're not taking verse 18 seriously. You have all the resources of the infinite sovereign God of the universe at your disposal but you're still trying to walk independently in the strength of your might rather than in the strength of his might. Now, there's a lot more I could teach on in this, but my time is limited. The one thing I do want to focus on here is the phrase that Paul uses at the very end of the verse where he says, intercession for all the saints. I want you to pray at all times, he says. Have a continuous dialogue with God. Pray all the time, and I want you to pray in the Spirit I want you to come before God's throne on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Come to my throne. Intercede for those that you love before my throne. Come with intercession, with petitions, with requests, and various prayers. Friends, this is so important for a local body to pray for one another. In fact, it's, it's so important we made it statement number three in our church covenant that reads this. We will not neglect to pray for ourselves and for one another. So why is it important? Why should we pray for others in our church? Is it just because it's a nice thing to do? It's just a kind thing that we do? Or maybe it's a tradition. You know, we're, well, I've been an evangelical all my life. We pray for each other. It's a tradition. No, it's so much more than that, according to God's word. The people in your church family are your fellow soldiers in the battle, and they need your prayers. When you become a member here at Oak Hill, you enter into a covenant. And you make a promise to stand with one another and to lock arms with one another in the battle. And when somebody in the, in the family scores a spiritual victory, we rejoice together as one. And when somebody in the church family goes down with a wound, we all suffer that wound together. And then we go and we help that person back up. And prayer plays a huge role in this. In fact, prayer is the very first thing. Even before the practical care. Prayer is the first thing. Why? Because we need to be strong in His might, not ours. And here's the key to doing it well. You see in verse 18 this phrase, staying alert. This is the key to doing it well. Because a soldier in the midst of the battle has to stay alert, right? He's got to stay awake. If he gets lazy, if he gets groggy and starts to drift off, that's how you lose the war. So we're to be like sentries, you know, guards, walking the city walls, always watchful. And so practically what that means here at Oak Hill is we're to be aware of what's happening in the body. All of us have a responsibility to be alert to the needs, the prayer requests that are coming up amongst our fellow soldiers. So do you know about a brother who's suffering right now? Pray for him. Do you, have you heard about a sister who's going through a rough time? Lift her up. 
Have you seen with your own eyes a marriage that appears to be in crisis? Intercede for that couple. Your prayers, every single one of you in this church, your prayers make a difference in praying for your fellow soldiers. Well, how am I going to know about these things, Jeff? How do I know that these things are going on? Well, this might require some self-reflection. This is where it gets practical. If you want to know who you should be praying for and how you should be praying, you might need to make a greater effort to know people. You've got to, as I think it was somebody said, you've got to know people, right? In order to know what they're going through and how you can pray for them. You need to make a better, uh, a greater effort maybe to connect and to build relationships in the church family. Or it might mean paying closer attention to the communication that's coming your direction from the staff to say, here's the needs of our body. Do you, do you take that seriously? When you hear something, you get a, a text or an email or something's posted on social media that says there's a prayer need, do you take responsibility for that and say, this is my church family. These are my fellow soldiers. I'll give you a great example, the fires that just happened. How involved were you in the church family with those fires? Were you aware of who was being evacuated? Did you read the emails and the text messages that were going around? Did you see the social media posts? Did you take time to reach out to those that you thought might be affected? Were you a faithful sentry on that day when the fires went crazy here? Most importantly, did you go to prayer? When you found out that there were people in our church that were really threatened by these fires, that were being evacuated, that needed a place to go, was your first thought to go to prayer, to intercede for them? I hope so. These are tools that are in place at Oak Hill that can help you stay alert for the needs of the body. You just need two things to go with it. Number one, a love for your fellow soldiers. And number two, a resolute trust that prayer matters, that there's power in prayer. I want to close with this. Listen to the wisdom of the great John Bunyan. He once wrote this. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. May we be known as a church that is growing in this area because we all struggle, right? May we be known as a church that is mighty in prayer for one another. Amen? Let's pray now. Father, thank you for a chance to to talk about such practical stuff in, in the New Testament, Lord. You have described, especially in the book of Ephesians, how many ways that we can love each other, how we can bring unity to this body, how we can serve each other and pray for each other, and, and all these things we've talked about this morning. Lord, it's so great to know that you haven't left us alone without a very strong and clear word about what we're to be as your followers and how we're to love one another. And so we praise you uh, this morning for all of that. And I praise you today, Lord, for my brothers in Christ, my fellow elders who love you so much, who love your word, who are so committed to this local church, Lord, a blessing upon their homes for all of the work that they do here. Lord, we pray that all of this today has been uh, just beautiful in your sight, and we ask, God, that you would continue to work in our hearts, work in our lives, to be more and more committed to each other here in this local church, Lord. It's all for you. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.